Good morning, Cross Point. We have to move very quickly in one of the most countercultural topics in the entire Bible. As I'm going to explain to you as we move forward this morning, what I have to teach you today has been well understood for, by Christians for about 1,900 years. But in the 20th century, and especially with gaining, with increasing speed in the 21st century, a fundamental teaching regarding the growth of Christians and what Jesus wants for those He saved has been distorted by American culture, especially American culture. Let me talk to you about the state of American spirituality. I'm just going to give you some conclusions, but these aren't mine. These are drawn from reading and research all across uh, contemporary scholarship, sociology, psychology, people who are evaluating religious movements. It is very difficult times for the local church in the United States. Whether it's scandals, guys like me, pastors behaving badly, a culture where people say, I'm just not a joiner, I don't know why I would do that, there's nothing in it for me. It is a difficult time for the local church of Jesus Christ in the West in general, in the United States in particular. Here's where we are, here's some current trends in our American spirituality. The first is the rise of the nuns, not knowns, that says nuns. Are you familiar with the term? The nuns are those Americans who, when asked, what religion are you, what faith do you practice, on that demographic survey, they answer with the word, none. In other words, I'm not anything, I don't affiliate, I don't believe, I'm not part of any kind of religious group. Just a few decades ago, that was a very small group. It is now a substantial group, and it is the fastest-growing religious group in the United States. Part of what's shaping that is what students of religion call intuitional beliefs and practices. And what that means is that your faith and your spirituality, what you believe about God, how you connect to your own idea of God and how you experience spiritual life and grow spiritually is entirely up to you and your intuition. It's driven by your instincts, by your emotions, by your own formation. Less and less is anybody in the, in the United States willing to listen to an outside voice telling you what is true and what is real. Here's one expression of that. People now say, my truth. Have you heard this? Sounds amazing, but it doesn't really correspond to reality in the real world. For instance, if you decide not to pay any taxes whatsoever, and when the IRS eventually comes calling, would you think you would do well telling that agent, well, according to my truth, People who live according to their truth with the IRS end up in prison eventually. They find out things about penalties and interest and all kinds of things. It has nothing to do with what God has said in His Word. It has to do with how our culture has shaped us. We are very, very intuitional in our spiritual beliefs. Along with that has come a return to ancient ways. Wicca paganism, druidism, all kinds of religious practices from centuries ago, from a world apart in terms of culture 
national origin, Americans are increasingly interested in things that come from the distant past, whether it's Jewish Kabbalah or Hinduism or yoga or Buddhism or your own mix of all of those things put together in a world that is increasingly chaotic where everybody talks about their truth versus your truth and no one can say exactly what is real and right and true, some people are finding refuge in the ancient paths. Along with that has come the rise of authoritarian leaders and movements. Some of them are explicitly religious, others are just inclined toward self-help. I'm thinking specifically of someone who has been very popular among evangelical Christians, a Christian, a Canadian psychologist named Jordan Peterson. He wrote a book giving people 12 rules to order their lives, and it went mega viral because whether it's Jordan or Jocko Willink or you pay a former military member $15,000 to treat you like garbage for three consecutive days, one of the pendulum swings in a chaotic world where nobody can say for sure what is real and true is to yield your autonomy to another and have somebody else tell you exactly what to believe, exactly what to do, how to live your life. Some of these movements are political, many others are spiritual. It's a, in other words, it's a stew, we're living in it right now in a stew of mix and match beliefs. Where you can do yoga one day and read Jordan Peterson and then go on a Native American vision quest and uh, use mushrooms or other things to alter your state of your state of consciousness. Some of these things are very secular, others are very pagan. In the Bay Area, in particular, through tech mavens and through very popular podcasts and books, like a podcast by a guy named Tim Ferriss a very American expression of spiritual belief and practice is what I call an individualized or a self-optimizing faith and practice. And this system of belief and these rituals, beliefs, and practices all have to do with making you your best self. Have you heard that phrase? Whether it's Gwyneth Paltrow selling you crystals or somebody else rec recommending that you microdose hallucinogenics, or it's billionaires in Silicon Valley receiving old guys, receiving the blood, trans uh, blood infusions, blood transfusions from much younger men hoping through receiving young blood to ward off old age. That's happening. That's a real thing. Look it up. Don't look it up right now. You'll get distracted. You'll go down the YouTube hole, but that's happening. That's real. That's open practice, whether it's hallucinating through drugs, receiving blood transfusions, telling somebody how exactly you should live your life, listening to somebody tell you that the most important thing in your world is to make your bed unless you don't feel like it, in which case you should follow your inner eye and your inner self and live your own truth for your best life. That's American spirituality. And you're not exempt from it. And neither am I. And I'm telling you all this because the current state of American spiritual thinking, every bit of it contradicts the Bible's teaching about Jesus and the church. Today I want to talk to you about the church. There's much more that I could say and probably that I should say about spiritual growth, but we've confined ourselves this year to just three weeks in this first series of the year, and we talked about the first thing we want to do is read our Bible. 
Most Christians say that they pray much more than they read the Bible, and what that tells you is that most of us are more interested and more comfortable telling God what we think than listening to what He's already said. No guilt, no shame, I'm just telling you that's the spiritual root of that. I want to tell you what I think. You should begin with the Word of God because God will infallibly, invariably tell you what is real and true if you can understand His message. Last week, Pastor Byron talked to us about the privilege that we have of talking to God in prayer. And today, I'm going to talk, I'm going to fight an uphill cultural battle because of everything I just mentioned and tell you that one of the most vitally important things you can do, and not only can you, you should because it matters so much to Jesus. And as I'm going to show you, because Jesus gave so much, continues even at this very moment to give so much and has great plans for it, one of the best things you can do to obey Jesus and to grow spiritually yourself is to be active in the church and get committed to the church and do the increasingly hard for Americans thing to do and be a joiner and be committed not only to Christ, but be committed to a specific group of Christians. What is a church anyway? Well, the Bible word is ecclesia. That's the Greek word. And if you understand what it means, how we should live together, how this specific congregation should function will be clear. I'm going to read to you, if you look on your if you look on your handout, here's a definition by two Greek scholars. The Bible word ekklesia means this. They say, Lao and Nida, a congregation of Christians. That's what ekklesia means. A congregation of Christians implying interacting membership. The word ecclesia was in common usage for several hundred years before the Christian era and was used to refer to an assembly of persons constituted by well-defined membership. A church, in other words, the New Testament word, the biblical word, borrows from something that was already existent and already known. It's an assembly of people that know that they belong to Jesus and that they belong to each other. That's what a church is. And if you read that very careful scholarly definition from these two Greek scholars, Dr. Eugene Nida was the father of modern Bible translation, you can read something other than the King James Bible in your lifetime primarily through his scholarly influence. He trained an entire group and started an entire movement of people who were going to study the Bible very carefully and do their best to translate it in ways that brand new readers could understand it. So if you understand your Bible a little bit better, you owe it to Him, in part. In other words, they're not making stuff up. They're just telling you from a lexical point of view. In other words, from a grammatical point of view in the ancient world, the word ecclesia, the word church in the New Testament, always refers to a specific group of people who have come together. And that they know they belong not only to the cause that brought them together, that they interact with one another. And their definition uses a couple times the word membership, and Americans say, wait a second. Membership, not a joiner. Well, except at Costco. 
and except for your subscription services, and except for this and for that, you gave Ralph's your phone number because it'll give you a discount. Now, why am I telling you this? Because that pinpoints the cultural problem which has created a spiritual problem. Our American highly individualistic, highly, in, highly intuitional what's in it for me mindset and trend has made Americans great joiners if they benefit. Try to get into Costco without the membership card. I did the other day. I didn't try. I just, I was absentmindedly walking through. I was thinking about, you know, getting to the back where the chickens are and getting a $5 chicken before they ran out. <laughs> and I tried to make it too quickly through the front door. She said, sir, gosh, yes, of course. Okay. <laughs> membership. The first Christians, and that's why that word was chosen, that's why that word was chosen from their secular world, the Christians knew that they not only belonged to Jesus, they had a heartfelt, self-sacrificial, corporate interest in one another. That's the way it's always been. That's the way it always will be. If we abandon the plan of Jesus, we will do so in disobedience to Him and in harm to ourselves. Jesus knows that people belong to Him. The members know that they belong not only to Jesus, but to each other, and the world knows it as well. Jesus knows it. They know it. The world knows it. Let me show you this in action. Open your Bibles, please, in Acts chapter 2. Some verses will appear on your screen, but I'd love for you to open your Bible, and if you don't have a Bible, to grab one from one of the seats near you and open it to Acts chapter 2, verse 41. Peter is preaching on the day of Pentecost. In other words, a large number of Jewish believers, not Christian believers, believers in Judaism, drawn from the ancient world, have come together in Jerusalem to celebrate a sacred day in Judaism. Converts to Judaism from across the world are also there. At that moment, through the miraculous power of the Holy Spirit, God orchestrates circumstances so that Peter has a large gathering of people listening to him, and he preaches to them one of the best gospel messages ever preached in human history. And the burden of it is this. Jesus came just as the prophets promised, and we killed him. Good job, everybody. We were waiting for Messiah. He came. We killed him. But God raised him up from the dead and vindicated the one he sent. And the reason you see us acting and speaking this way is because Jesus very much is alive and he is the one that is empowering through the Holy Spirit what you're seeing in us. And he preaches the gospel to them. And if you're following along with me, please, in Acts chapter 2, verse 40, it says, with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. I want you to see the progression. People aren't expecting to hear from Peter they're there in observance of Judaism, but they hear Peter's preaching about Jesus. They receive it. Then what happens? We're just studying the Bible together. As soon as they receive it, something happens to them. What do they do next? They're baptized, and then it says there were, what? 
added to their number about 3,000 souls. Added to what? That's the joining. That's the mutual belonging. That's the coming together, not only to Jesus, but to each other. Verse 42 makes that clear. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. From that moment, all of those people who just now came in devoted themselves to certain things. Let me walk you through this. First of all, they devoted themselves, and the church is proclaiming the gospel. They're telling people, people who Jesus is, and they're telling people that Jesus can save. As soon as Jesus saves them, they baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, the same way Jesus commanded. So the gospel is proclaimed, believers are then baptized, and then those believers are taught. They continue to teach them. It says they continued in the apostles' teaching. If you read the rest of the book of Acts, you're going to see them gathering in homes, you're going to see them gathering at the temple. The teaching that the apostles received from Jesus is continually reinforced and repeated to these brand new Christians. Then it says they devoted themselves not only to teaching, but to fellowship. And what that means is life together. And if you read the book of Acts, what you discover that means for these first Christians is they are sharing their very lives and they are sharing their resources. The ancient church was immediately slammed with persecution, so open-hearted Christians through no obligation and with no external pressure started bringing generous offerings to the church. The apostles received those and distributed to people according to their need. Paul turned the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 2, every week set something aside in keeping with your income and give it at the church so that we don't have to receive collections when I arrive. In other words, they're not only giving of their finances, they're giving of their very lives. They're sharing life together. They're bearing one another's burdens. They're fulfilling all of the one another's of the New Testament, which cannot be done in the abstract. If you're going to love and serve and give and bear the burden of another, or if someone is going to bear your personal burden with you, it always has to involve someone you actually know. It then goes on to say that they continued in the breaking of bread. And what that means is they're celebrating communion together. It's subtle in the New Testament, but it's really clear what's happening. And it's not, it's subtle because it wasn't explained because it was taken for granted. As local churches gathered in homes primarily for the first several centuries of the Christian church, they came together for worship and prayer. Someone taught the Bible. They shared a meal together. And part of that meal was set aside in remembrance of Jesus, what we today call the Lord's Supper or Communion. They're sharing life with each other, and they're sharing life with Him, and then it says they devoted themselves also to prayer. They're praying for one another. And there's no other organization in the entire world, including any Christian ministry, who was commissioned by Jesus to do all of that simultaneously. There are many good parachurch ministries that teach the Bible, and I benefit from them. But they weren't commissioned by Jesus to baptize and to give communion. 
They are poor substitutes for the prayer, the burden-bearing, the life-sharing, that actually being close to another group of people uh, always implies. An American dodge that is very unique to us and in this 21st century is to say this. Maybe you've said it, maybe you've heard it. I don't need to go to church. We are the church. I don't need to go to church. I'm part of the universal church. Let me explain that to you. With very, very few exceptions, and I'm going to show you one of the exceptions. Every time the New Testament uses the word ecclesia, it refers to a specific assembly, a specific gathering of individuals, which we call the local church. I'm going to show you one of the exceptions, and I want you to keep in mind that the exception I'm going to show you, it's really obvious what's going on here. It's using the same word, ecclesia, but it's using it in an institutional sense to talk to a specific local congregation. Let me explain. If I say to you, we here at Crosspoint love the family, that's true, by the way, would you ask me which one? No, you understand that we have a commitment to the institution of the family. But our commitment to the institution, to the idea, to the concept, to the organization of the family only becomes real and practical and only matters if love and support and commitment is given to a specific family. This weekend we had an amazing time with the Love and Respect Conference. Many more of you came to the Love and Respect Marriage Conference than we expected. That was an investment into the individual families that attended. If you heard me say week by week, we love the family, but you called me and said, hey, my 13-year-old is off the rails. Will you come talk to him? And I said, no, I don't do that. <laughs> We're really having trouble in marriage. Would you pray for us? No, I don't do that. Uh, Pastor, we've really got some, some bad news from the doctor, and we're very concerned about my wife's ongoing health. Would you please come pray with us? No, I don't do that. If you got three consecutive no's to a request for prayer, counseling, support, encouragement, I said, no, 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 I won't go to your family. Would it make any sense to you? When, would you believe me when I told you that we love the family? Of course not. Love for an institution, love for a concept only actualizes, it only matters if it's given to a specific church, to a specific person, to a specific family. Here's how Dr. Roger Olson, a giant of a scholar who teaches at Baylor University, explains how we've drifted. Olson says, nowhere in the great tradition of Christianity before the 20th century, mind you, Jesus died in the very beginning of the first century, nowhere in the great tradition of Christianity before the 20th century can one find the uniquely modern phenomenon of churchless Christians. They didn't exist for 1900 years. They are a modern invention reshaped in the image of our own individualistic, intuitional, what's in it for me, I'm not a joiner unless it helps me, culture. If you want to be a true Christian, an OG Christian, an original Christian, an authentic Christian, you have to do it the way Jesus set it up. So let me show you from Ephesians chapter 5 very briefly why you should belong 
to and love a congregation. Why you should give your life to a congregation. And if God moves you, you should ask Him wisely to find another why you should love it. I'm in Ephesians chapter 5. I'm in the last half of Ephesians chapter 5, if you'll open your Bibles there. And I'm going to show you something from Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 22 and moving on through the rest of the chapter, which you might think is strange because if you look carefully at your Bible and if the editors put a heading there, what is the last half of Ephesians chapter 5 about? It's about marriage, husbands and wives. Now, what's going on? I thought we were talking about the church. I want you to see this because it's so obvious and so strong that sometimes people miss it. Paul is addressing a specific local congregation in Ephesus. Ephesus is modern-day Turkey. You can visit ancient Ephesus, what little is left of it, to this day. This was an important church. Paul's preaching brought it to life. The apostle Paul, according to church history, eventually pastored it. It was one of the most influential and strongest churches in the New Testament. It received a letter, according to the book of Revelation, from Jesus himself saying, you've been very faithful and you've been very strong, but you have lost your first love for me, so get back to loving me first and most or I'm going to come in and shut the place down. Okay. There's symbolic language there, but that's exactly what he said and exactly what he meant. And Paul is telling the Ephesian church for the first three chapters that God has done an extraordinary thing, which is eventually what led the Christian faith to do great harm and in much of the world utterly destroy the institution of slavery and why the Christian faith should always create racial unity and harmony. The first three chapters explain to these Gentiles, that they and the Jews are now united in the church. That there is no ethnic animosity, there's no racial hatred between them because Jesus died for both Jew and Gentile and has torn down the wall of ancient hatreds that has separated them for years. In Ephesians chapter 4 through 6, he tells them very practically, here's how you're going to live in the church. You're going to forgive one another. You're going to love one another. Here's how you're going to raise your kids. Here's how you're going to work. Here's your, how you're going to bear with one another and forgive one another. And in Ephesians 5, right before wrapping up the letter, he gives marriage counsel. And he tells wives and husbands specifically how to live in relationship with each other. But here's the strong part that is often missed that I want you to see. He says that his counsel for husbands and his counsel for wives is based on what Jesus did for the congregation, on what Jesus did for the church. Why should you belong to and love a congregation? Because first, Paul says, Jesus died for the congregation. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Let me rephrase that, and maybe it'll have more of an impact. Christ loved the congregation and gave himself up for the congregation. You know what that means? Kind of mind-blowing. Jesus died for Crosspoint. He didn't die for us alone. 
He died for untold millions of assemblies down through 2,000 years of church history. Some, a handful of scared Asian believers in a persecuted part of the world who have gathered with what spiritual leadership they have to read what little of the Bible they have in their own language, to baptize believers in secret, and to repurpose whatever they can gather into communion. Jesus died for them. He died for us. Every time you see the word church, you should bear in mind that that is eventually expressed and almost all the references are to an individual congregation. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. He died for the church. Here's Paul preaching to these same Ephesian elders in the book of Acts, chapter 20, verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves, Paul said to the pastors of the church at Ephesus. This is a foundational verse for me as a pastor. Fellow pastors, pay attention to this. Here are our marching orders. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, to care for the congregation, to care for the assembly of God which he obtained with his own, what's it say there? Blood. That's heavy. Pastors, pay attention to yourselves. Don't go crazy. Don't get sidetracked. Don't start loving money. Don't pursue women who aren't your wives. Don't, your, don't let your teaching get squirrely. Don't get trendy. Pay attention to yourselves. And while, you've, while you make sure that you're in check, pay attention to the whole flock. Notice, a pastor has a flock. I may preach anywhere, but I have one flock. It's us. If this is your church, I'm one of your pastors. I can come alongside another Christian, but I am not given responsibility for every flock everywhere. Just this one. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. In other words, though it looks eventually like a pulpit committee, the Holy Spirit is at work to appoint spiritual leaders in the congregation as He pleases. And here's a pastor's job, to care for the church of God, to care for the assembly, to care for the gathering of people that preaches the gospel, that baptizes people, that teaches them the Bible, that brings them together, that shares their money and resources, that prays for one another because, Paul says, he obtained that congregation, that church, that assembly with his own blood. Wow. It's big. It's way more important than I don't feel like it or I'm not sure what's in it for me. If that's your mindset, your thinking has missed the heart and the character of Jesus altogether. Jesus died for the church. And not only that, Paul goes on to say, number two, Jesus nourishes it. You should love the church and give yourself to the assembly in obedience to Jesus, because not only did Jesus die for this church, He is presently nourishing it. Open your Bibles with me in Ephesians chapter 5 and look in verse 29. By way of marriage advice, Paul's going to circle back and land on the doctrine of the local church. Check this out. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of, what's it say there? You know what this congregation is? The body of Christ on this corner. 
The local church occupies space in the world. It's visible. Christ has a physical body in glory to this day. He will someday return from glory to gather us up. But Paul has the boldness to call the local assembly with all of its blemishes, with all of its fights, with all of its needs for mutual forgiveness, with all of its troubles, members of the body of Christ. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Don't miss this. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to what? Christ and the church. Paul is saying in verse 29 that Jesus nourishes and cherishes the church. And I can't tell you how much comfort that gives me as a pastor. Because many times I walk away from this engagement, from what I'm doing right now, preaching, apologizing to Jesus. And say, I really should have said that better. That explanation wasn't what I intended. I wasn't as well prepared as I should have. And it eats me up until I get to do it again. And my comfort is, Jesus cares about the church far more than I do. I eventually go to sleep. I eventually engage with a thousand other things in my life. What is Jesus presently doing for Cross Point Church and every other true gospel-preaching, Jesus-loving church in the world? He's nourishing it and He's cherishing it. That means that Jesus just didn't die for the church. He's living for it right now. Jesus up in heaven is using His eternal life, the very life of God, to nourish it and to care for it. He just didn't die for the church. He's living for it at this very moment. And what that means, very simply, church, is Jesus isn't dating the church. If you keep reading through your Bible, you're going to discover that the final picture in the Old Testament is the marriage supper of the Lamb where Jesus welcomes the church, as it says right here in Ephesians chapter 5, as a beautiful bride which He has cleaned up and made perfect and reserved for Himself. It's a huge word picture. Jesus said there is no continuing human marriage in heaven. There will be a forever marriage between Jesus and His church. So if He's not dating the church... If the church is his bride and he has committed his life to it, people who should be part of the church shouldn't date it and flit in and out of it either. We should love it and serve it with the same kind of heart and spirit that he does because we belong to him. And if we belong to him, he wants us to belong to one another. A final reason you should love the church and commit yourself to it is that God is glorified in it. Let me show you Ephesians chapter 3 verse 20. Let me show you what Paul's doing here. You'll notice we've backtracked from Ephesians 5. The reason is Paul has been teaching doctrine about this reconciliation between Christ and people, uniting people who formerly hated each other into his body, the church. That's the burden of the first three chapters of Ephesians. He's going to finish that section by making one great point about what Jesus is doing in the local church, and then beginning in Ephesians chapter 4 through the end of the letter, chapter 6, he's going to tell them very practically how to walk it out and work it out. Here's the truth about the church in the first three chapters. Here's the practical life of the church in the last three chapters. 
and great communicator that he is, inspired by the Holy Spirit, he closes here with a massive crescendo. It's not yet the finale because he's still got half a letter left to write, but he really drives it home in Ephesians 3 verse 20 by praying. Here's what he said. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us. You ever heard that verse before? You ever prayed that God would do more than you ask or think? Ever take comfort in the fact that God can do more than you expect? People use this verse all the time. I want to show you something. When we use the verse that way, we're literally ripping it out of a paragraph. We're stopping Paul in mid-sentence the same way I did. And it's not wrong. That's always true. But Paul doesn't have in mind me getting a better job in verse 20. Or me scoring the winning touchdown or having cute kids or whatever else that concerns you. Which is very important and God cares deeply about. He has something else in mind. Something more global. Something more eternal than any temporal earthly concern. You can keep praying with the confidence that God does more than we ask or expect. That's true. That's what Paul said in verse 20. But look what he said in verse 21. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory, where? In the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Where is God presently glorifying himself? Where does God want to glorify himself? Right here in the local assembly. To take a bunch of knotheads like us who were far from God, not looking for Him, ruining our own lives in sin, hating ourselves and hating other people, and welcoming us through the death and resurrection of His Son. When we repent from our sins and turn back to Him, He receives us individually as His precious child. And He says to you, you are my son, you are my daughter, you belong to me now. But here's the thing, church. If I'm a child of God and you're a child of God, I'm God's son and you're God's sons and daughters, what does that make us? We're family. We're brothers and sisters. And God gathers up for his own purposes his family in these smaller assemblies, sometimes numbering a few people, sometimes numbering many thousands. But he dies for the assembly. He nourishes the assembly. And what he wants to do in the world right now is glorify himself in the ordinary assembly of his people through which he can do extraordinary things like bring glory to himself and glory to Christ throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. What I'm trying to tell you simply is this. We should love what Jesus loves, the church. If you've not been a joiner, let me invite you to become one. And this isn't a recruiting pitch for our church. This is a healthy, growing, God-honoring, Jesus-loving church. God's at work here. But if for whatever reason you're not able to commit to this congregation, commit somewhere. Honor and obey Jesus by being part of what He's doing somewhere. If God has led you here, welcome. Come on in. Let's link arms, let's link hearts, let's join resources together so that God will be glorified through what He will do through this assembly, all flowing from this simple fact. Jesus loves our church, and we should love it too. Let's pray together.